HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Michter's Distillery. Visit michters.com to find out how their taste-is-everything-cost-be-damned attitude is creating some of the finest whiskeys available. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Uh, today I'm very excited, a very, very special guest. Uh, I'm here with Mr. Charles Smith, uh, the man behind K Vintners, um, the man behind uh, House Wine, Kung Fu Girl, Charles Smith Wines, uh, and probably many other projects that I, I don't know about. Uh, a true uh, pioneer in the, the wine industry. Um, he's, he's just the man, uh, Charles, uh, Charles's winery has been named, uh, best new wineries in the last 10 years by wine spirit magazine, a winery of the year in their annual buying guide, food and wine magazine awarded Charles winemaker of the year in 2010 and Seattle magazine recognized Charles as their winemaker of the year. Uh, also in 2010, uh, pretty impressive, uh, resume. Welcome to the show, Charles. It's good to have you. Good to be here. Uh, re- I'm really excited. Uh, really excited to have you on the show. You know, we like to start the show with uh, the best wine that we've had in the past week. Um, and so I was thinking about it on the way over uh, this morning. And you know, la- last night I had dinner at Narcissa, and I had a really lovely um, Milan de Borgonia from Leu D in Santa Barbara, which was uh, which was really tasty. But in your honor, I, I did uh, on Sunday night along with my girlfriend Alyssa have a 1999 Syrah from Edmund St. John, which was was pretty cool to find oh, cool. Uh, uh, an older Syrah. We found that up, up at the cellar door in Ithaca, and that that was uh, that was awesome. I know Syrah is one of uh, one of your favorite grapes. Absolutely, I make several, to say the least, uh, single vineyard Syrahs. <laughs> Have you guess, had uh, several? Four or more, right? I think that that counts as several. Uh, okay, then I make about nine. <laughs> Have you had a memorable wine in this last week that you, that you'd like to share with us? Uh, probably the tastiest wine I had this last week, and I don't mean to be, be highbrow, but I had this bottle of '66 Chateau Fiac, and I really love old Bordeaux, and uh, that was really really tasty. Wow, '66. How did you find that one? Uh, I went downstairs. It was in my wine cellar. 
Nice. <laughs> it was easy to find. That's awesome. Um, all right, Charles. So you, were, you used to be a rock band manager. I'm not sure if everyone knows your story, but a pretty impressive story uh, of someone who was really into wine uh, at a young age and then the, the allure of music uh, and, and working, uh, working with, with rock bands in Europe kind of pulled you in that direction. Then you came back into wine. Yeah, you try to get out and it keeps pulling you back in. They pull you back in. That's what happened. No, I went to Denmark um, after you know, working in restaurants where a lot of people come to wine um, when I was 29 years old. Couldn't get a job in the wine industry or in uh, Denmark and started uh, booking bands in a little rock and roll bar. And that got me into the music, and then I came back to America and started my winery. And do you? What, I, I find that uh, I know a couple of musicians who are who are really into wine, and I always try to think about where is there this cross section of interest? Are there where are there similarities? Is it just that if you're into some of the good things in life, if you know, if you appreciate. Uh, well-made music and how that can add to your life. Maybe you'll also appreciate something like uh, the craftsmanship behind wine. Or is there something more to that? Is is wine and music on the same level in some other way? I think it's more you know kind of artistic and just people that are open and interested in things. And I mean, a lot of musicians, you know, they they, they travel, they get exp- a lot of exposure. And I think in general, I mean, wine and eating well and drinking well is, is part of the good life. And whether it be, you know, rustic uh, and on a rustic table and drinking out of jelly jars or out of a three-star Michelin restaurant, it's the same. It's something really beautiful and divine. Yeah. And so what are some of the skills that you picked up traveling the road with these rock bands that, that were really kind of useful, especially in the, the early days of, uh, of your business? Uh, the ability to get up every morning after having a really big night the night before. <laughs> And now I have to do it on my own. So when I travel around the, the, the world now, I go by myself. And in the old days, it was with a group of other people traveling with the band. Yeah, and now in your in your early days, you were a couple hundred cases of year, a couple hundred cases of wine a year. Yeah, and you've grown this to you know in fifteen years or so to several hundred thousand. Yeah, several. That's four more, right? <laughs> That's four more. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. It was it was quite unexpected. My goal was when I moved uh, back to the United States from Copenhagen was to you know maybe make a thousand, two thousand cases of wine. You make a modest living, have a small town farm farming life, and make wine till I was an old guy. Uh, it turned out quite differently, but my dream is still the same. I love making wine. This is what I do. It's my passion. And I feel very fortunate that it turned out on the business-wise to be very successful. Yeah. And how do you make wines that still are distinctive? Because your wines, at the lar- even at the, the larger scale, like Kung Fu Girl, for instance, right. like that, that is still a distinctive wine that speaks of the terroir. And it, you think that at, at some level there, there might be a cap to to that happening, but you're, you're able to do it. The cap is really the vineyard and it's also the commitment and you don't get fatigued and say, okay, I'm just going to, you know, uh, mail it in. And so for me, it's, it's kind of like this, this is my analogy. Let's just say, you, you know, you're going to come over to my house for dinner and we're going to barbecue some steaks. And also one of our other friends comes over, Hey, what are you guys doing tonight? And, and I'm not much from you or we're going to be, I mean, we're going to bar- barbecue some steaks and um, can we join you? Sure. So what we do, we don't all of a sudden just go buy some not so good steaks. We get we already bought really beautiful meat from this local butcher. We go down and get two more identical steaks, and we grill them the same, season them the same. Why would they be any different than if we only made two? As long as you don't drop the ball or change the plan anywhere to doing that, the only limitation is by cutting corners 
or running out of um, you know the source material, and that's it. So, I mean, I make 180,000 cases of single vineyard Riesling. I think it's the largest single vineyard bottling in the world. Yeah, how large is this vineyard? At, at some point, is it is you think that a vineyard might have a consistent, whether soil type or exposition, climate. At some point, one end of the vineyard has to be slightly different than the other end. It is, but the thing is, what it also gives you is some slight variables because you'll get maybe a slightly warmer, maybe a slightly cooler, and they kind of balance it out. And so when you have really the heart of a vineyard and everything else around it, and you know, Washington State's a big place, and we're, this vineyard's right on top of the Columbia River, and the vineyard is uh, 1,400 acres. So theoretically, from 1,400 acres, you can make somewhere in the neighborhood of 450,000 cases of wine. <laughs> so there's room for expansion. Wow. Wow. So, so anybody out there in, you know, in uh, the world of uh, wine drinking, if they want some more reasoning, let me know, and I'll make it for you. Uh, so what, what drew you to, uh, to this? And I should say, it's also one of oh, the, the, wait, the great, the one great values. Let me interject. Yeah. Cheers. Oh, cheers. Yes. Uh, yeah, so this is my new project. It's what called Sixto, and uh, it's single vineyard, high elevation, old vine Chardonnay from Washington State. I fermented this in concrete and in barrels, and there's no new wood in this, and it's a uh, 39 year old vines at 1600 feet elevation. Wow. Yeah. So. 16, so what what qualifies as as high elevation in in Washington State? Anything above sea level? <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. Um, it, this was at 1,600 feet, so yeah. that's relatively high, yeah. and you know because also we're far, far up north. A lot of people think Washington State is just cold and rainy. One thing, it's not cold. It is. There's a lot of rain west of the Cascades, but east of the Cascades, it's continental climate. It's dry, and so um, we have these long growing seasons that we can mature, mm. you know, wine like this. And so really, you know, we're at the same latitude as Bordeaux. And, for example, California is at the same latitude as, like, Morocco. So, you know, when's the last time you had a great bottle of Moroccan wine? I remember the last time I had a great bottle of California wine. It wasn't too long ago. They make great wines in California. But we're not as far north as everybody thinks we are, and we're not cold like everybody thinks we are. So we have these long, cool growing seasons, and we can make wine like this. This, this wine is really impressive. You poured it uh, right, when we, uh, right when we got started, and I didn't know what the wine was. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. Charles is making wine in Sauvignon. It reminds me really very much of that, uh, of Chenin Blanc, in that it has uh, a lot of density, weight, texture, but also high acid. And it's much more aromatic than I was, I would think, uh, of of Chardonnay. Uh, But that that combination of the density and roundness, but also with with really nice acidity, uh, I think makes this a, a really tasty wine. Good. I'm glad you like it. That's delicious. How did you find this? How did you find this vineyard? How did this project come to be? Um, well, um, I love I love Burgundy. I love great Chardonnay. And um, a winemaker that came to start working with me, Brendan Layton, who was a winemaker at FST, and he was the white winemaker at Chateau Saint Michel. He knew about all the great vineyards in Washington State. When I proposed that we start something like this collectively together, along with Andrew Lotto, the other winemaker that works with me, um, I wanted to do a Chardonnay based winery. So we do. Three single vineyard Chardonnays and one uh, cuvee called the Uncovered. Wow. Now, where does this name, the name, come from? Sixto. I, oh. I've been very interested in wine names recently. Oh, good. That's a good question. Um, it comes from, um, you know, Sixto or Sextus means the sixth, and it, it is my sixth project that I began. But really, it was inspired by um, the idea of uh, resurrection and taking these old vines that have really not been used uh, for making great wine. 
and repurposing them and making wine such as this. And it came about by watching that movie, Searching for Sugar Man, about Sixto Rodriguez. I love that movie. Isn't it amazing? No, it was, <laughs> Went out and bought his records after that. I love the records. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. I mean, Cold Facts is what an amazing album. But nevertheless, I mean, I, I saw it at this great art house cinema in, in Denver, and I was just so blown away. And, and the integrity of this guy and the qualities of music. And the thing is, he was always there. You know, but people didn't know it. I mean, he had to be rediscovered, almost about resurrection. And because of, I think, the integrity that he has, and he displays that um, I was inspired by that to name my wine Sixto, based on you know the fact that it for me is it Sixto for me is resurrection. Wow. Yeah. If you guys haven't seen it, it's just in, this incredible story of uh, a musician who uh, it sounds like he was a little bit abused by his uh, by his record label, but he never knew he became really popular in South Africa. Right, bigger than the Beatles. Bigger than the Beatles. Um, and his his career in the States just uh, kind of fell apart and he just went into construction. So for like Yeah, he worked years. as a day laborer for like 40 years. Still lives in the same house he did while he was doing that work. And uh, and and a journalist sought him out uh, who was just kind of looking for, for a story and uh, just always assumed that in in the States, Sixto Rodriguez was probably as big as he, as he was in South Africa and sought him out and, and brought him back. And uh, uh, apparently uh, the, the rest is history. Yeah, the legend about Sixto was that he was dead, that he had committed suicide on stage and caught himself on fire or shot himself or something like that because he completely disappeared from the face of the earth. Nobody knew where he was. And he, where he had always been was right there in Detroit working as a day laborer. Wow. Uh, well, the wine is the wine is absolutely delicious. So, six is your your sixth. Your first was K Vintners. K Vintners, and then I started the Magnificent Wine Company, which was a house wine brand, and I sold that to Precept Brands in two thousand seven. And then I started, then I started uh, Charles Charles Smith Wines, you know, like Kung Fu Girl, The Velvet Devil, etc. Boom Boom Syrah, and then I uh, partnered with Charles Beeler, and we make the Charles and Charles wines, which features the, the rosé. The Cabernet Sauvignon Syrah, and the uh, now we'd make a beautiful cold climate Chardonnay from Washington State as well. And what what's the future for your like what what really excites you now? What are you most interested in? Uh, what really interests me now is kind of like the con- continued journey. I started in Walla Walla, that's our viticultural home, and now we're going to Seattle. We're uh, currently uh, restoring the 1963 Dr. Pepper bottling plant in Georgetown, which is just north of Boeing Field, south of downtown Seattle, and we're moving the winery to downtown Seattle. Amazing. So uh, an urban winery. An urban winery, 32,000 square feet of deliciousness. Yeah, we have Red, we have red Hook wines here in, here in New York. Um, I've heard of plans for stuff in Los Angeles, but how many, how many urban... I guess at Berkeley with the would like Brock and Dunkin' Goat be considered urban wineries? Oh, I would imagine so. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And the one thing is, you know, I mean, we have estate vines. Um, you know, like I said, the the emotional and cultural home for my winery is in Walla Walla. That's viticultural home. Everything will remain the same there. It's just now where we make all the small batch wines, like the wine we're having now, uh, will be produced in Seattle. So you know, one about one about every five hundred people that come to Washington State make it out to Walla Walla. But everybody makes it to Seattle. Yeah. There's lots of people that would like to visit us, and I want people to be able to have access to to the winery. And so we're going to be in Seattle. 
I think that's a that's a great idea, and uh, just getting more people to understand the process and what what goes into to making wine, uh, what it is, I think would be would be really helpful. It's about access. You know, we want people to be have opportunity to you know get in touch with our wines, whether it be you know to buy them you know in a store or to actually visit and see how we do it. All right, we are going to take a very quick break, and uh, we'll be back with more of Charles Smith uh, in a little bit. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Full service. Michter's Distillery is a proud sponsor of In the Drink and Heritage Radio Network.org. At Michter's, our passion is making the finest whiskeys possible. When you only make small batch and single barrel whiskeys like Michter's does, your whiskey has to be perfect. No detail is too small, from careful attention to the wood used in the construction of our barrels to lower barrel entry proof before heat-cycled aging in advance of exacting chill filtration. And no whiskey gets bottled until Michter's master distiller says it's just right. Michter's cost be damned, taste is everything attitude is apparent in every sip of its smooth, rich whiskeys. Is it worth it? A lot of spirits lovers seem to think so. Food & Wine magazine called Michter's the best American whiskey. Bon Appetit said it's amazing. And the Wall Street Journal had one special word for Michter's. Phenomenal. For more information, visit michters.com or simply visit your favorite bartender or retailer and ask for Michter's. All right, we're back with Charles Smith, and uh, I'm still really enjoying the Sixto Chardonnay 2012. Um, has evolved in the in the glass. Some of the the fruit aromatics uh, have kind of uh, simmered down a little bit, and you're really getting a nice intense minerality here as well. Uh, absolutely, it's it's really cool wine. I'm glad you like it. Uh, so, Charles, tell us about how uh, you view uh, Washington has been changing. I mean, you've seen you sort of got into the Washington wine industry. Um, at an interesting point in uh, in in its history, that I mean, I didn't even realize that how many you know vines were planted thirty nine years ago. Not a great deal, as far as I understand. Um, and so, how is it? How have you characterized the change from the late nineties to uh, to today? Well, it's kind of like California. You know, when California wine country really started. It was kind of uh, you know pioneers, and then it was kind of mom and pop. You know, I mean, people would have a you know a small vineyard, and that's where they make their you know they'd have a a little stand out front and they would sell their wares and Washington state was kind of the same, you know, but you know, beginning another, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years after California did, but it's really what's happening. We've kind of gone from that small, you know, mom and pop winery situation to where there's, you know, been some really skilled hands planting vineyards and uh, doing the work and where I reside, which is wall wall. It's always been known as the quality leader for Washington state. So when I went there, I really wanted to go where the best wines are being made. And the evolution is quite, Amazing the quality, uh, the plantings, and just in general the the whole spirit of making wine in the Pacific Northwest and the recognition they've been getting worldwide has been really exciting for everyone there. So even when you when you came back from Denmark and you you bought this little shop, at that time Wall Wall already had a reputation of being top quality. Is that what drew you to that area? Absolutely. Um, with some of the wines that I had had, I mean I had some wines from well, there's this good little winery called Seven Hills Winery in Wall Walla. And I had a really impressive bottling from them when I, I think from the 1997 vintage when I, or maybe actually 1994 vintage when I was actually traveling through touring in Seattle. 
and it always kind of made me want to go there. And that's one of the wines that uh, was just really impressive. And I discovered other guys that were making really good wines as well, like Leonetti and Woodward Canyon. And they're pretty much the pioneers for a quality wine in Washington State. Yeah. And uh, I want to talk about um, your wines under the Modernist Project. So you have a range of brands under the Modernist Project, like Kung Fu Girl we spoke about a lot, The Velvet Devil, Boom Boom, Syrah. Mm-hmm. Um, these wines are really geared towards the concept that the majority of wines are purchased to be consumed upon release. Um, other countries seem to really have this like table wine culture where you you, you buy wine and you, you drink it right away. Um, here in the, in the states, it's do you feel like we're we're lacking that? I feel like people buy nice wine and drink it right o- right away, and buy not nice wine and drink it right away. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like that. I think you know this the idea of you know everyday drinking wine. People kind of think about it as inexpensive wine or not wine of quality. Um, you know, everyday wine should be a wine of quality. I mean, you should never have wine a bottle of wine that is not wine of quality, whether it be inexpensive or expensive. And secondly, you know, the idea with my, you know, my modernist project um, is that it's about communicating the language of wine to everyone. I and mean, the the labels are very modern, but the winemaking style is very classic. So the idea is that, you know, when somebody purchases a bottle of my wines, like the Kung Fu Girl, for example. Um, they're going to get rewarded by it with really top, top-notch wine that can be drank that day. It doesn't have to be, but they're not going to um, be cheated anything by the youthfulness of the wine. They're going to get definitely all their money's worth and then some, you know. Yeah. And the thing is, it isn't – I mean, everybody should just have, quote-unquote, common wine to drink every day. And you really find that in wine countries simply because – it's a wash with wine, so people have wine on their table all the time. I mean, one of my greatest wine experiences was in, in Strasbourg, and they grow all those you know, cool climate aromatic whites. And, you know, we come into a little tavern, you get a pichet, a little pitcher of Gewürztraminer. You know, it's dry and spicy and smells so wonderful. And a plate of raviolis, because that's the, some of the food that they have there. You know, and the, the pichet maybe costs $10. And the other raviolis maybe cost eight. I mean, that's the good life, right? I mean, that's better than pretty much anything else in the world you could possibly eat or drink that day. Yeah. And it is the most common and local thing to do. I, I, I absolutely, absolutely love that. And I, I do think that's missing out where, where in, in Europe and in, I mean, I've spent most of, my, most of my European time in Italy. It's it's not a question of if you want wine with lunch or dinner. It's that it's just going to be on the table. Of it's, course. It's like if you go to a restaurant and now we, we expect there to be water or bread, you kind of just expect you're, you're going to be having wine and you're probably, unless you're at a, a real wine destination, not going to be thinking too much about it, but you still want it to be tasty. You still well, want it's going to be the local, the local beverage and it's going to go with the food. I mean, that's, you know, it's like you're in Lombardia. I mean, you don't think of Lambrusco being any good, but with the type of risotto that they make in that area, which is really rustic, and you think, okay, well, Lambrusco is a pretty rustic, fruit, fruity, grapey wine. But you know what? They're made for each other. Yeah. I, I think this is great. So what do you think is the big problem? Like, where, where is the disconnect with domestic producers who make wine to be released in their youth? And um, the, how, do you, how do you instill quality in these fresh young wines? Well, I think the deal is that um, the consumer, you know, the general person like your, you know, ourselves – you know, we know what we like when we put it in a glass. And I think that a lot of producers, they think that they want to make inexpensive wine with all the bells and whistles of expensive wine, which is lots of oak and lots of extraction and richness. But what you really need is a really balanced, fresh, and pure wine. And the idea is, and those wines are going to be easier to drink, and they're going to be less expensive to produce, 
and everybody's going to win. And that's the, the, the whole, that's the whole uh, screw-up as far as I'm concerned is that the disconnect is not having a clear message. Uh, if the wine's going to be expensive, I'm going to make it as pure as possible, not built for aging, although it may age. So therefore, I'm not you know, putting a, you know, something in the bottle that is saying it's more than what it is. Mm-hmm. And we put the, a little bit of the onus on the drinker as well. I know that you have a slogan, it's just wine, drink it, right? Which, which is just don't overthink it. Don't overthink it. I mean, you know, you can ask some people what's the best wine experience they had. And usually it's not the wine itself. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's the, the place and the people that they're with. One of my top wine experiences was a, probably a 50-cent bottle of wine in Bulgaria floating on my back in the Black Sea on a beach all by myself, and, and the wine was pretty average. It was really minerally. And, but here I was a guy from a small town outside of Sacramento in Bulgaria when I was like 34 years old, and I never imagined I was there. And I just remember looking up at the sky and couldn't believe my good fortune that I happened to be out here in the middle of nowhere in the world by myself drinking a 50-cent bottle of wine. It was pretty great. Wow. Yeah, I mean, my experience with that was I, I took the Funiculari, which is like this little monorail. Yeah, in, in Capri. Up, uh, not in Capri, but very, very close by in, in Naples, from okay. Naples to Ananopoli. So this okay. little tiny town that kind of look, oversees the Bay of Naples, and it was the uh, it was Easter, and the, we smelled the Pane di Pasqua that was coming out of the oven. We got a Pane di Pasqua and got a three-euro bottle of white wine and looked over the Bay of Naples... And yeah, it couldn't have been couldn't have been any better. The best bottle of wine you ever had. Uh, it really is one of the best. How did you get to Bulgaria? By the way, For, randomly, my uncle is in Bulgaria right now, and you're the only two people I know who've ever been to Bulgaria. Well, when I lived in Copenhagen, I didn't really have you know m- much means to speak of, but I could get a really fl- cheap flight from Copenhagen down to Sofia, and I was able to travel around by myself for thirty days, um, and that's how I ended up going to Bulgaria. It was basically I knew that he made wine. I knew it was inexpensive, and I could get a ticket, and I could afford to go. And that's what took me there. And I traveled the entire country. It was beautiful. Food was good. Uh, it, was, it was a great experience. Awesome. All right. Well, Uncle Chuck, I hope you're having a good time right now. <laughs> yeah, I hope you're having a good time, too. It's um, fantastic there. And uh, talk to us about your partnership with, uh, with Charles Bueller. Um, you, uh, you work on a project called Charles and Charles. How did, how did that come about? How did that friendship come about? The partnership and uh, what what are you working on together? Well, Charles kind of called me out of the blue, and, and his family owns Chateau Rutas in Provence, making really fantastic rosé. And he all he had this history of selling rosé and promoting rosé, and he wanted to do something in America. I think where else but in the Pacific Northwest, cool long growing season. So he picked up the phone, gave me a ring, asked me what if I wanted to do it, make some rosé, and I said, God, I'm really busy at the time. He goes, Well. I'll, I'll put up the money for the first vintage. I said, you're on. So, <laughs> so I did it, and it's just been growing from there. And, you know, Charles is a great guy to work with, very inspiring, and, uh, yeah, a great partner. And we make this beautiful rosé that's, you know, I guess, Wine Spectator, tater, Top 100, and all those kind of things. And um, it just seemed to really connect. It tells an American story of American wine. And there's the American flag. And the American flag. On the label with the French. Yeah, apparently, legally, <laughs> you're not supposed to do that, but it's... A riff on the American flag. It's not really the American oh, flag. Oh, a, a non-American. A tribute. It's a tribute. A tribute. I mean, we didn't even get... We're, we're, we're getting towards the end of the show, but I didn't even get into the crux of... How does someone who was a wine enthusiast, who worked in music, moved back to the West Coast, turn into a winemaker? Like, did, where, where, did you, where did you learn how to do your trade? Well, I did it in the hospitality industry, but you know, I paid a lot of attention... 
I drank a lot of wines. I paid a lot of attention. I visited a lot of wineries. It's kind of like this. If you were a freak about pizza and you had eaten at hundreds of pizzerias all over the world and talked to pizza makers, sat there at the counter and watched them make it, and one day somebody says, I, you're gonna, I want you to make a pizza, and they gave you all the ingredients, what's the chance of you probably making a pretty good pizza? Yeah, I guess that's pretty good. But yeah, wine, is, wine is much more complex than pizza, huh? Well, a lot more decisions. Well, I guess I'm more complex than pizza. <laughs> I love it. And then as someone who's trying to, to grow a business, a, a, especially a, a wine business or a food business, what, what's advice? What do, what do you wish you knew when, when you, were, you started out? Uh, you, you've done just this in, incredible job. Uh, had, what, what would you tell yourself or what would you tell a, a uh, new business? Trust your instincts. Don't follow others. Trust your own instincts. I mean... You know, when an idea comes to your head and you see it as being true, don't look to others to see if it's going to play out right. Just trust your instinct and move forward. Mountain climbers never look down. They only look up. They only go where they're going, not where they've been. Yeah. And has that, has that failed you at any point? or is that Never. I, it, it is, it's been an incredible ride. I, I cannot believe it. I pinch myself every day. I can't believe it that I'm here. But really, I had nothing to lose, so I only move forward. And this is how it came. And, you know, tomorrow will be something new, and the day after will be new, and it's an exciting time. Oh. What music's playing in the winery? Uh, probably right now, maybe <laughs> Buck Owens, I Got a Tiger by the Tail or something. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I like, I like really uh, diverse music. I mean, it might, it might be playing Slayer right now, or it might be playing Dolly Parton. I don't know. Wow. But it definitely is not going to be Justin Timberlake. No. No, definitely not. I know he's a triple threat, but... No offense, Justin. I hope you like my wine, but um, you know he won't be playing in my singer, wine. dancer, actor. Is that the trouble? Uh, apparently, yeah. I think the acting. He's the. Have you seen him on SNL? The oh no, he's the bleep, in, bleep in a no. box. That is pretty oh, hilarious. Yeah, well, you can say Dick. I mean, like Dick <laughs> Tracy, right? Yeah. Actually, I think on this show, if we don't say Dick, then uh, Jack gets really upset. So okay, so <laughs> Dick, 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 Dick. That's a whole lot of Dick. <laughs> Charles, what a pleasure having you in the studio Thank today. you for having me today. It was Guys, fun. check out, uh, obviously, K Vintners, but this Sixto is uh, exciting new release. It, absolutely delicious. A very cool, a very wonderful going into the fall white wine. Uh, absolutely. Get ready to snuggle up for winter. Cool. Uh, thanks again. Uh, thanks again, Charles. You're the man. And uh, thanks to all of you for listening. This has been another episode of In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.